the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. In this episode, we're lucky to be joined by Chris Cunningham. Chris is a very accomplished professor, an expert on the Zodiac Killer, and he says he's not an expert on D.B. Cooper, but you won't agree with that when you hear just how knowledgeable he is on the case. Ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, Chris Cunningham. All right, Chris, would you would you tell us how you got into D.B. Cooper? Uh, yeah, sure. By the way, Darren, I'm, a, I'm actually a big fan of the podcast, and um, I, I listen to every episode so I can anticipate some of the questions you're going to ask, but... It, 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 strange story is it's actually your podcast that kind of rejuvenated my interest in the case. Um, maybe a few months ago, a year ago, I don't quite remember exactly when, but, um, but my introduction to the Cooper case came, uh, I'm in my mid forties. So uh, most people my age, their first, uh, exposure to the DB Cooper case was on the, uh, unsolved mysteries episode. Uh, I think it was originally hosted by Robert Stack. And then, uh, you know, as you, as you grow older, you know, you, you go to college, you got life going on, but it's always kind of in the background. It's in the headlines from time to time. It's just kind of in the cultural zeitgeist D.B. Cooper is. I mean, it's in a, a Kid Rock song, for goodness sake. So it's always kind of, you know, in that, in that background. Um, and uh, in the mid-2000s, um, I think I probably ended up um, on the old drop zone. Um, back uh, when it was the wild, wild west. And people were, you were back then. I just lurked. Yeah, I wasn't a poster. I just lurked. And okay. um, I was there for a little bit. And uh, it, it was just it, it was it was the wild west people screaming at each other and doxing each other and all kinds of craziness. So um, it, it, it honestly kind of scared me away a little bit from the Cooper community and, uh, Doxing before that was even a word. <laughs> yeah, no, back then it wasn't a word. Um, but, but yeah, just, it, just craziness going on on that, on that website. I mean, all, all of the old posters and, and all of the craziness and, and just the vitriol, you know, it was just crazy. And I think that's eventually why I ended up getting shut down. And, you know, you kind of, I kind of fell away from it. Um, and then, you know, kind of came back into it. I think a couple of years ago, I tried to register for the, uh, for shutters forum and, uh, got no response. And it turns out that you kind of have to kind of know somebody, know somebody. So actually, thankfully recently, Nikki B, uh, intervened and, and got me on there. But my story with Cooper is, um, I get sucked into the vortex, but I'm able to get, I'm able to extricate myself. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not one of these people who uh, get sucked in and, and can't get out and are just kind of become consumed by the case. Um, it's, it's, it's just kind of a, I hate to say this because some of the people on the vortex are going to take offense, but it's just kind of a hobby for me rather than a, 
been a lifetime passion. And um, I, I don't, and just want to state up front, I am in no way consider myself an expert on the case. Um, I'm certainly not in that same level as guys like Bruce Smith and Shutter and Georgia and Eric Ulis and Flyjack and, and, and everyone else who um, have worked tirelessly on the case and, and know more about the case and I have forgotten more about the case than I'll ever know. But um, I think I have I think I have a better knowledge of the case than the average person, and, and hopefully I can share that with your with your listeners and, and you today, and just kind of be a couple guys talking DB Cooper. But one thing that you are real familiar with is the Zodiac case, is that right? Yeah, the Zodiac is my wheelhouse, um, and uh, that's that's a case that I've been following and have done extensive research on, and I know that case inside and out, backwards and forwards. Um, but, but, uh, you get to a point, I think when you're, when you're researching a case and there are just so many questions and so many dead ends and and so many leads that just go nowhere and no new information coming about that you just kind of look for other things to occupy your time. And, um, and that's when I stumbled across your podcast and, and listened and, and kind of got that old, uh, DB Cooper interest fired up again. I've done, I believe, four episodes now that have a D.B. Cooper and Zodiac connection. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, In the Zodiac community, before I get your opinion on the validity of that. Yeah. In the Zodiac community, is there an idea that Cooper is the Zodiac? You know, it's one of those things that gets kind of tossed around from time to time. I. I don't think it's it's taken um, really very seriously uh, as as a theory, um, and, and honestly, I don't really understand why the um, uh, the DB Cooper and Zodiac um, are conflated. I don't know why people think they're the same guy. Um, if you really look at both cases, um, you'll see that there are very very stark differences, and uh, just in the description alone. Um, Zodiac was described as shorter. He was, you know, five, eight, heavy set, beefy build, stocky. Um, those are words that were used to describe him. And I don't think any of those words were used to describe DB Cooper. He was described as medium build, slender. Um, and then of course, uh, you know, his age, I mean, the Zodiac was, was described between, uh, you know, 25 and, and 40 and, um, and DB Cooper was older. So just the description alone, um, just, I, I think it just kind of eliminates any connection between the two, but, but who knows? I mean, maybe I, I just, I, I just don't see it. It's just two different guys, two different mindsets. And, um, you know, they, I, I don't think, I don't think any connection between the two has any real, real validity. My biggest problem with it. And I'm, I know more about the Zodiac from investigating DB Cooper than, from anything else. I mean, I saw the, that movie that came out, what, 10 years ago now or something, but I've never really investigated the Zodiac case or anything, but from my knowledge of it, he, he murdered people and they had their wallets and money on them still. He didn't rob them. Is that right? Oh yeah. No, he, he had no interest at all in, uh, in robbing them. He had no interest. There wasn't any sexual component to it, as you'll find with many serial killers. Um, he killed because he wanted to get famous and wanted to get his, his pseudonym in the, in the papers and, and mess with the cops. 
Um, D.B. Cooper was just the opposite. D.B. Cooper committed his crime and then vanished into the ether. So, um, and didn't without hurting anyone. Yeah, and he didn't hurt anyone. It didn't. Th- I mean, uh, other than threatening to blow up a bomb, uh, <laughs> right? You know, Zodiac used guns and knives and and you know th- those types of things to to inflict deadly harm against people. And and, and Cooper didn't. And yeah, it's just two different mo's, uh, two different parts of the country. I mean, one was you know Washington, the other was Northern California, and. I mean, I guess you could a case could be made where they're not that far away, but I just think the connections are really, really tenuous. Why are people making the connection between the two? Honestly, I think it has a lot to do with the uh, with the sketches, with the police sketches. I think if you hold up the police sketches, they're vaguely familiar, they're vaguely similar, Um, and but again, yeah, if you look at pictures of people back in the late sixties, early seventies. Every guy looked like that, you know. Every yes. guy had short hair and and glasses and and you know just the the, the sketches are just so vague that they look like anybody. Um, and I think they're probably the two greatest unsolved American mysteries. And I think people like to make connections like that. I think the human mind's hardwired to make connections. And um, when you take those two very famous cases and the sketches look vaguely alike and they happen vaguely in the same region of the country. I think people want to think, Ooh, maybe it was the same guy. Um, but, uh, I just, I don't see it. I, I, I just, I really, really don't see it. Um, and, uh, why people continue to try to, to push that. I don't know. Um, it, it's just, it doesn't ring true to me at all. Having swam in both the, Zodiac killer pool and the D.B. Cooper pool. What are the differences in the communities and and what are the similarities? Uh, That's a great question. Um, Obviously, the the Zodiac community is bigger. I think just uh, in general, the Zodiac case is attracts a a bigger uh, community. There's more interest in it than I think in the D.B. Cooper case. Um, Why that is, I have some theories, but... um, I, I, I just think in general, the Zodiac community is bigger. And for what I have found is, honestly, the D.B. Cooper community, it, it's, it's, it can be at times pretty antagonistic. Um, you know, as I referenced before in the old drop zone, uh, there were, I mean, it was, it was pretty bitter at times, pretty, pretty vitriolic. Um, with the Zodiac community, it's much more collegial. There's much more cooperation, collaboration, and that's not to say there's not some really strong personalities that really get after each other. And and uh, I mean, two of the the biggest names in the Zodiac community in terms of researchers despise each other. Um, but uh, really, on just on discussions on boards and things, I don't find the level of uh, antagonism and and defensiveness that I find in the Cooper case. And I don't know why that is. I don't really have an explanation for that, but. Uh, I think I don't think it's great. I think it's really detrimental to the case because I think there are a lot of people who have a lot to offer the case and they try to come on and, and contribute to the community and offer some ideas or, or even just learn about the case. And they get scared off because there are just a lot of uh, strongly opinionated people um, who can be uh, prickly uh, to be politically correct. Um, and, and that can scare some potential people who are interested in the case away. And I think you lose some voices, lose opinions. So I, I hope that it improves and I hope that 
uh, as, as more and uh, newer people come on that they can create that same level of cooperation and collegiality that you find in the, in the Zodiac community. That is interesting that they're, they seem to be a little bit more cooperative. Yeah. But I wonder if, if part of that is, I know my frustration in, in dealing with people that are new to the D.B. Cooper case is that the ideas that they tend to have have already been covered like a bazillion times. Yeah. So I, I think that you do get some of this frustration because to get to the level of knowledge like of, of Georgia or Bruce Smith or R99 or Shudder, I mean, they're they're deep into it. You're not going to show up one day and say, hey, I have an idea. What if uh, the flight crew was in on it? Right. Um, it, it's going to be tough for, for Georgia and, and Shudder and myself to pretend like that's the first time. Right. Oh, yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. No, I, I don't disagree at all. And it can be frustrating in the Zodiac community too, because you have people who watched, watch the David Fincher movie and, you know, that was made back in 2007. And all of a sudden they know exactly who Zodiac was and, and they come on and <laughs> it's like, look, you know, like we, th- that guy's been eliminated, ver- you know, th- this is why. And, and you have to go through it again. And, and that can get tedious and it can get aggravating. I get it. Um, I, I think one thing is that a lot of the people in the, in the Cooper Vortex, have already made up their minds that they either have a suspect and they're convinced that their suspect is the right guy, or they have a theory and they're convinced that that theory is right. And, and no amount of evidence and, and no amount of debate is, is going to get them to change their mind. They're just very entrenched. And uh, you kind of get that, that hedgehog mentality where, you know, any, any criticism or any questioning about that particular suspect or theory, people can get very defensive uh, and, and really lash out. Um, and uh, I, I think I'm unique in that I don't have a suspect. Uh, I don't have a particular theory that I'm wedded to. I, I have some ideas about things, but I'm prepared to be wrong. Uh, I'm prepared to be shown evidence that completely contradicts what I have to say. And I don't know if everybody has that same level of open-mindedness um, in, the, in the Cooper Vortex. And, oh, um, hell no. No, I, yeah. I, I hell think no. People are very, very <laughs> opinionated and... and um, I, I don't find that necessarily that same level of this is my guy, this is my theory, you know, my way or the highway, and there's nothing you can do to, to change my mind. Uh, I'm sure there are people like that, but they're certainly not prominent. Yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, and some of the some of the people, like, they'll be shown evidence that's like, this completely blows up your whole theory. Right. And then you see them like making mind tricks to kind of explain it away. Yeah, that that absolutely drives me crazy because I am a college professor. I am an academic. What we do is all evidence based. It's all logic. It's all reason. There, there, you can't. If if you're faced with evidence to the contrary, you have to change your mind. And I think what people do instead is they try to change the evidence, and and that's just it. it or, or they ignore the evidence, um, and it just doesn't work like that. I mean, even if you talk to investigators, detectives, they'll tell you like, you know, yeah, we'll come up with theories, but we have to be prepared to abandon those theories. Um, and, and I don't know necessarily that a lot of amateur researchers are willing to do that. Um, and, and that's not, to, and I don't want to come across as I'm, I'm bashing everybody on the vortex. I mean, I, I, I get along, I think, with everybody on there uh, to a certain degree, except maybe one or two people. 
And those people I just kind of ignore because I'm too old to get into flame wars with people on the internet. Uh, (laughs) Oh, uh, you're never too old for that. (laughs) But, you know, most people on there I I, I get, you know, along with quite well and I've exchanged messages with them and emails and things like that. Um, But uh, so it's not bashing the vortex or the people in it. Um, I I just, I I, I just, I wish there was a little bit more, um, wish people were a little less toxic and a little more nice. Uh, and willing to to listen to different ideas and work together and, and be cooperative, but uh, but it's a great resource. I mean, uh, Shutter Site is fantastic. Um, I think it's a, a great resource. It's a great depository for information. Um, you know, the Drop Zone is back. I think that's got its place. I think that's beneficial. Um, so there are resources out there. I think that are great. I just I just hope that those types of places don't become so. Um, I hate to use the word toxic because I don't, I think that's probably a little extreme, but for lack of a better word, I hope it doesn't become like that to the detriment of of the case and scaring people off who might have an interesting idea or two. There is also a, um, a new D.B. Cooper discussion forum uh, on Reddit. Yes. It, it was always pretty small, but, but recently it's Yeah, I think there are over a thousand exploded. subscribers now, right? Or is that what they call them on Reddit subscribers? I don't know. Yeah, I believe so. And I, I know the people who are managing that and they're trying to keep it real friendly and civil and not let it devolve into what the drop zone became. And that's that's great. And, and I agree. And actually, I'm, I'm on a Discord as well, which I, I, I don't quite know what that is exactly, but I'm on one. <laughs> it's it's kind of like a really complicated text message, uh, group text message. But nevertheless, I'm on that and people are great on there too. Um so yes, I think there are there are places outside of of the, the old school ones that are that are positive and and cooperative and people get along and there's a, a positive exchange of information. The only criticism I would have of those is that I think a lot of times it's people who are very new to the case and like you said, a lot of the stuff that they're bringing up now has been rehashed again and again and again and again for the last ten or fifteen years, um, and. Um, you know, I, I, I wish there was just uh, like a D.B. Cooper Wikipedia, like, you know, just a Wicca, a Wicca Cooper or something where people could just go and it would just be a, a one-stop shop Cooper resource for people who were new to the case and, and they could just totally get caught up on it. But um, but the problem with that is nobody could agree on what details would be in there. I know. And the person running it would get, you know, angry emails all the time. Like, I, I know. <laughs> Maybe you should do it. You seem to be pretty well liked in the Cooper Vortex, Darren. Maybe you should be the uh, the neutral uh, neutral intermediary there. I've managed to stay pretty neutral so far. Yes, you are. I think you are the most universally liked person in the Vortex. So, <laughs> oh, thank you. You make me blush. <laughs> I want to ask you. You said you had a theory on why the Zodiac community is much larger than Cooper. Yeah. Would you care to expand on that? Yeah, I um, well, I think I think number one, the Zodiac case is is more. I don't want to say popular, but more publicized. I think there's more discussion about it in media, um, more discussion about it online, and I think that's because of the different natures of the crime. Uh, Zodiac was active from nineteen late nineteen sixty eight to, I mean, he was sending letters in nineteen seventy four. Um, he killed five people over the course of about 10 months, 
Um, and those crimes and those codes that he sent and the letters that he sent, it was a, that was a years long, multi-year long campaign. And he was constantly in the front page of the newspaper. He was constantly on the evening news. It was a constant thing. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, the, uh, the famous book by Robert Graysmith came out in the 1980s. Um, and then, of course, the Fincher movie in 2007. So they, there have always been these um, moments. I, I don't think that Zodiac has ever left the cultural consciousness. And D.B. Cooper was just the opposite. Um, he committed his crime on one night and was never heard from again. Um, no letters. And I know that there have been some letters that people have claimed to be from Cooper, but I don't put a whole lot of stock into that. Um, but, uh, but outside of that, nobody heard from him. He didn't send letters. He just sent codes. He didn't call the cops bragging about what he did. Uh, he didn't commit the crime again, uh, as far as we know. So it was a one-time event rather than Zodiac, which, which happened for, uh, over the course of many years. And the other thing as I think is the case is the nature of the case itself in terms of the Zodiac is much more abstract. You have astrology and symbology and these esoteric codes and clues that he left. And there's the occult and all of that kind of weird abstract stuff. The Cooper case is very data-driven. It's very concrete. I mean, you have to be a special kind of person to be able to sift through and understand radar data and, you know, water currents of the Columbia River and, you know, the, uh, the rate of decomposition of money and uh, diatoms and all of those things. It's very, very data driven. And you don't find that in the Zodiac case. So I think it attracts a different group of people. It really comes down to, you know, would you rather, you know, somebody comes to you and says, would you rather do a jigsaw puzzle or would you rather attend a science seminar? I think most people would rather do the jigsaw puzzle. Um, and I think that kind of represents the attraction of the Zodiac case is that there's that abstract kind of let's fit the pieces together, whereas the Cooper case attracts a very unique subset of people that are very into data and science and uh, kind of fitting that all together. Uh, and I don't think you find that in the Cooper case. So I, I think it, it tends to attract a, a unique, uh, unique group of people the Cooper case does. So um, I think those two things probably have determined why the Zodiac case is, is a little bit more popular and why the communities are a little larger. What do you think of this true crime explosion in, in the last, let's say, five, six years? Yeah, I think it really has to do with podcasting, really. Um, I, the, the podcast uh, phenomenon, I think, has really come around in the last five or six years. And people are really able to just kind of binge on these podcasts. And there are some great ones, uh, just some really terrific ones. Um, uh, you know, Payne Lindsay, of course, he came out recently with the, uh, you know, the Zodiac um, uh, monster, the Zodiac killer, which is a huge success. I mean, he, he's done so much for, for true crime. Uh, so I think the podcasting really has kind of spurred it. Um, and, uh, but, you know, something you've mentioned on previous podcasts is how the Cooper case is interesting because it's true crime, but it's not really mentioned a lot in true crime podcasts because there's no murders. There's no sex, there's no drugs, there's no rock and roll. Uh, it, it doesn't have that, you know, if it bleeds, it leads kind of thing. It, it's, it's, it's a heist. Um, and again, I think that, I think people are more attracted to that 
edgy, dark, uh, you know, bloody um, serial killer type of thing, you know, just weird disappearances than someone who, you know, stole some money and jumped out of the back of an airplane, which I find interesting, but I think a lot of people would rather are, are more attracted to the whole blood and guts type of serial killer stuff. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I also find it so interesting that the true crime audience is primarily female. Yeah. And if I look at my my followers on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, it's 90% dudes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you look at the people who post online, it's primarily guys. Uh, I'd be hard pressed to, to think of a single uh, woman who posts on the vortex. And, uh, Lynn. Yeah. And Lynn, Joe I know. Weber. Well, <laughs> the only, yes, Joe, Joe Weber, certainly Joe Weber, who could forget Joe Weber. Um, but, uh, but yeah, very few. And, and again, I think that just kind of goes back. I, boy, I don't want to say anything sexist because my, my wife and my daughter will kill me, but I, I just think maybe it again is it's about the nature of the cases. You know, the Zodiac case is a little more abstract. It's, clues and puzzles and codes and and symbology and the occult and that kind of abstract stuff and the cooper case maybe attracts you know guys because it's more concrete it's more substance it's more data um i don't know i i I really can't say but i I do think that's an interesting uh observation about the the breakdown of, of gender in terms of the cases once and for all is db cooper the zodiac killer uh, I'm never going to say absolutely not, uh, but I think it's very, very, very unlikely that the two cases are connected in any way. If, if you had to bet your rent money on it, you're betting it's not. Yes. Yeah, I would bet my rent money, sure. I bet, I bet, I bet your rent money, too. <laughs> um, you, you touched on a little bit, but the Zodiac had written letters, likely from the Zodiac. There are five or six Cooper letters, I guess up to seven, depending on uh, what you think could be from Cooper. But you don't put a lot of weight in those letters being from Cooper himself. No, I, I just I think they were probably people who were trying to get in on the the action at the time. Uh, I mean, who knows? I, I don't know. I don't think the FBI put a lot of stock into them. I don't think law enforcement put a lot of stock into them. Um, yeah, I, I just... To me, it's not really an important part of the case. I, I don't think you can determine one way or the other if they were from him or if they weren't. But I think it's unlikely just based on Cooper's personality. I mean, he got away with it. Why would he want to tempt fate? I mean, he, he you know, if, if he jumped out of that plane and landed successfully and walked off with $200,000, why would he want to tempt fate? Just go and, you know, sip a Mai Tai in Maui or something. Yeah, I also think about he asked for his notes back on the plane so why would he get home and then immediately write a letter to them? Right. You know, it's funny. You, you come across that in the Zodiac cases. There are people who are absolutely convinced that Zodiac was leaving clues to his identity. These obscure, esoteric clues. And if people could just put together and make connections, they'll be able to figure out who he was. But again, why would, why would somebody do that? I don't, think, I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that Zodiac was hiding clues to his identity and his codes or in his letters or in his crimes. Um, but, but you'll find people who just make the wildest connections uh, in, terms of, in terms of the case and, and trying to fit together the pieces of the puzzle. And, and 
I just kind of shake my head and I'm like, look, I, I, why would he want anybody to know who he was? And why would he make the clues to his identity so obscure that, you know, you'd have to, it just, it, it beggars the imagination. And I think the same thing with Cooper's, you know, why would, why would he want anybody to know who he was? Uh, he, he, you know, if he got away with it, then why would he want to get caught? It, it just doesn't make sense. I, I don't know why anybody would want to tempt fate like that. So I think the letters are, are really just kind of fluff. I don't really think they have a whole lot to do with the case. Yeah. And most of them are signed DB Cooper. Yeah, and that's not the name that he used when he bought the ticket, right? I mean, that was the name the media kind of botched into. So, uh, and, and I, yeah, I, I I don't buy it. I, I really don't. I have a hard time believing it. But, again, I'm prepared to be wrong, you know? Is the flight path accurate? Well, so here you go, Darren, is, is I've listened faithfully to your podcast, and most of your podcasts have to do with suspects, right? Uh, person comes on, they talk about their suspect, why their suspect is the guy, why they think it's the guy. And, and I don't have a suspect. Um, I, I, I kind of have an idea of what I think happened, but I don't have a suspect. So let's, instead of talking suspects, let's really get into the weeds with D.B. Cooper and, and really talk the case. You, you feel like doing that? Definitely. So let's, let's do it. So I think, and, and again, like I said, I'm no expert. I, I bow at the feet of the people who've been in the vortex far longer than I have. So, but I, I, in my opinion, the, the case the case rests on three pillars. These three legs that the case rests on. The first one is the flight path. Where was the plane um, during the ordeal? Where was it traveling? The second leg is when did Cooper jump? When and where? And the third is the Tina Bar money find. Those are the three major questions in the case. Um, the flight path, the, the drop zone, and the Tina Bar money find. Now, one of those pillars we know the answer to, right? Tina Bar money find. We know that the money was found, where it was found, who found it. Um, we know the, 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 the location of it, all of that. Um, we know the answers to those questions. So, so we've got one leg down. Obviously, there are questions on how it got to Tina Bar and the mechanisms that that moved it there, and that's a, a whole other thing. But but we know that the money was found on on Tina Bar in 1980. So that leaves two legs to be talked about. The first one is the flight path, and the most generally accepted flight path is the F, what's called the FBI flight path or the Central Flight Path, right? And it's the one that most people in the, in the Cooper vortex are familiar with the yellow map, right? Uh, the yellow flight path map that's on uh, uh, Tom K's website. Right. The FBI's generally accepted flight path. Exactly right. So that's the first one, the, cent the central flight path, right? And then uh, you have the eastern flight path, which took the plane over the Washougal uh, watershed. And then you have the western flight path, which took it more kind of down the Columbia River and over Tina Bar. So let's talk about each of those. I, I don't think that there are many people who subscribe to the Eastern flight path um, anymore. I think Tom Kay's uh, research into the money has kind of eliminated any chance that the money was in the Washougal at any time. And um, I think most people who are in the case just kind of reject the, the Eastern flight path now. Um, so we can kind of dismiss that, I think. Um, so that leaves the Western flight path. And for some reason, there's a vocal minority within the vortex who really push 
the Western flight path. Um, and I, I just don't think that the Western flight path holds a lot of, holds a lot of weight. And, and I'll tell you why. First, if you talk to people who support the Western flight path, they'll point to four or five pieces of physical evidence uh, that support the Western flight path. The first one is the, the Hicks placard find, right? Well, Shutter's done some amazing research into that placard find recently and suggested that maybe that placard didn't come off the plane to begin with. So Flyjack also. Flyjack also. Yes, absolutely. And so th- it's possible that didn't come off the plane. Um, and if it did, it was, it was right underneath the FBI flight path. So um, it, that really, I don't know how anybody could use that as a, as a piece of physical evidence for the Western flight path. Uh, and then you have recently, there was some discussion about the, this piece of fiberglass that was discovered in Cinnabar. In fact, um, Eric Ulis did some great research and discovered the, the FBI memo that talked about it. And, um, you know, that, again, there's, if you, if you really look at the flight path, it doesn't support a Western flight path. It supports a central flight path. It was found virtually underneath the, the central flight path within a few miles. So, and then of course they, they try to utilize the Tina bar money find. Well, you know, the, the, the flight path flew over Tina bar, Cooper jumped and, and landed on Tina bar. It just, it, it, none of those things are, can be used as physical evidence for the Western flight path. If anything, they support a central flight path. So let's talk about that central flight path quickly. There is overwhelming evidence that that however you want to describe it, the central flight path, the generally accepted FBI flight path is correct. Uh, the, the evidence is overwhelming, in my opinion. Um, for one, we have to understand that this is at the height of the Cold War, right? And we are, our national defense is on high alert for any Soviet bombers, any Soviet fighter jets. Uh, we are, are, there's no way that our national defense is not going to know exactly where that plane is or any other plane in the vicinity. Um, the, the Air Force, Northwest Orient, uh, engineers, the Boeing engineers, they all analyze that flight path with a fine tooth comb. And that's not my opinion. It's in the 302s. Uh, and it was the, that flight path that you see depicted on that, on that FBI map uh, was plotted from radar data, Air Force radar data, and then routed through the SAGE radar at McCord Air Force Base. And that SAGE radar was, um, the, the, it was, it stands for semi-automatic ground environment radar. And it was a system of large computers and it coordinated with many different radar sites to create a unified image of the airspace over a particular area. And you had military radar, civilian radar, human sighters, aircraft sighters, all kinds of information being loaded and it relayed in real time um, what was happening in the skies. And that was also being recorded so that um, the past positions of aircraft and missiles, as well as uh, current positions, and they could even project future locations. So all of that radar data was being used to track 305, even if it wasn't hijacked. And the fact that it was hijacked even caused more scrutiny on that radar. Um, it was always saved. And I know some people have said, well, the Sage radar, you know, might not have been working that night. Well, that's ridiculous because the Sage radar had 
um, uh, backup, an active uh, system, and then a standby system in case the active system went down. This is, again, the Cold War. We're talking, you know, nuclear war. There was a great fear of Soviet bombers and, and Soviet fighter jets, um, particularly along the periphery of our national defense, which the Pacific Northwest would have been. Um, so I, I don't think there's any way anybody got that flight path wrong. Um, I, I just, I, I don't buy it. Um, that radar had to track everything in airspace, whether it's military aircraft, civilian jetliners, um, and there's, uh, this is all in the 302s. Um, now, that said, you have that yellow map, right? And that yellow map, if you look at it, is essentially looks like it's been kind of crudely drawn in pencil <laughs> with a ruler, right? In fact, one of the old uh, posters, uh, Hominid used to call it, the, the word he used was Neanderthal. You know, it was the Neanderthal pencil lines. And I think that's a great descriptive word for him because if you look at him, it just looks like it's been hastily drawn with a ruler and, you know, with a, you know, Dixon Ticonderoga number two. And uh, I, people want to, who support the Western flight path, want to point to it and say, that's the exact flight path. That's exactly where the plane was. That's where the FBI says the plane was. And I don't know how you can say that. I mean, this is J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. They're not going to go search for a, a hijacker based on a crudely drawn, penciled in uh, flight path on a map. Clearly, the Air Force provided better maps for them um, and, and, and a better flight path for them. So they get really hung up. The people who support the Western flight path get really hung up on this FBI map. And, um, and I, 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 I don't think you can look at that map and say that it's exact. Um, I think it's generally correct. I think generally... 305 flew down what's known as Victor 23, the, that low altitude flight uh, uh, flight path. Um, so I, there's just so much evidence uh, when you really get into the weeds with the flight path. There's just so much evidence suggesting that it, that that central flight path is 100% accurate. Yeah, I I asked Tom K about it, and he has a very matter of fact way of speaking. I'm like, hey, Tom, is the flight path accurate? And he said, we had the most advanced radar equipment at the time yeah. tracking that flight. So I don't see any reason to doubt the official yeah. flight path. Right. And, and the people who support that Western flight path, there's two schools of thoughts. One, somebody screwed up. Well, somebody didn't screw up. You have the, the, an entire detachment from uh, the, uh, uh, the, the radar center there. Um, I think it was called the, the, what was it? The 84th, uh, radar evaluation squadron. Their job was to look at radar, evaluate it and create plots and, and flight paths. Uh, that was what they did. They provided data, uh, radar data reconstruction. Um, that was their job. Uh, they, they did this stuff in their sleep. It, it, they were a vital part of national defense. Uh, there were 20 to 30 active duty members and five to seven civilian contractors working in that unit. It wasn't one person that would have screwed up. You would have had to have had anywhere between 25 and 35 people screw up big time. Um, and uh, I, I just, I don't see it happening. Um, yeah. You know, not to mention the pilots and the air traffic controllers as well. Everything, everything. And I, I know uh, I've heard before that, that, People think, well, uh, you know, they, they screwed up because um, that, that penciled in flight path was actually the, the interceptor jets, which was trailing the 305. And that doesn't hold water either because those things are Mach 2 interceptors. Those things are built for speed. 
And if they're trying to tail that 305 going 175 miles an hour, they would be doing wide S turns trying to bleed off speed. Um, and that would have shown up in a radar as this wild S shaped uh, pencil line. And that's not what it shows at all. So I don't think that holds any water either. And then, of course, the other school of thought with um, with the flight with the Western flight path is that there was a, a, a grand conspiracy uh, with the FBI and the NWO to uh, you know, redact information and and uh, you know cover up something for reasons unknown. And it's just kind of like I mean, this is the same time. Watergate, this is right around the same time Watergate happened, and they couldn't even keep a two-bit burglary quiet. And you're going to tell me that they, they were trying to cover up, uh, you, you know, two, three hundred people trying to keep quiet about a, a major uh, crime that was committed? I don't buy it. It, it just doesn't. I'm a logical, reasonable guy, and, and that just it doesn't seem logical or reasonable, either of those two explanations. So that said, I think the that central flight path is... Um, absolutely in a hundred percent. Well, I won't say a hundred percent, 99.98% accurate. Um, so getting back to my original premise is that you've got Tina Barr and you've got the flight path, right? The flight path, we can, let's say that that's accurate, that central flight path. So now you have to triangulate. If the flight path is accurate and it was flying down along Victor 23, then how did the money end up on Tina Barr? Because those two things are miles apart. Uh, either Cooper landed uh, successfully and then walked west for miles and miles and miles with a 30-pound bag of money and then buried it on Tina Barr for unknown reasons and then left it there. Um, or there's another way. And I, and I think the most logical explanation is that the jump was later than is generally accepted. And Cooper or the money and or the money ended up in the Columbia and the Columbia River transported it to Tina Barr. Um, I think that's the most logical explanation for this. Um, so that's kind of my theory is that if you have Tina Barr, we know that's true. If you have the central flight path and you know that's true, then you have to triangulate those two facts. How did the money get from the plane that was flying over here to a, to a beach on the Columbia over here. And I think the most logical explanation is that money ended up in the Columbia. Now, that's a nice, neat little theory, right? But there's a lot that goes into that. Did Cooper live? Did he lose the money on the way down and survive? And, you know, he walks off into the night, you know, totally defeated because he, he lost the money. Or did he die? Uh, and then obviously Tom K threw some questions into that because, his recent paper that he came out, which I've, I've read about a dozen times, indicates through his diatom research that the money didn't even get wet until the springtime and the crime occurred in November. So that means that the money was dry on ground from November to May, June, July. Uh, where was it? Was it up in a and, tree? And possibly didn't even enter the water. For years. Yeah, right. So, you know, at, at that point, you have to ask yourself, well, you know, I, I, and, and you try to use your imagination. Well, maybe maybe the money got separated from Cooper on the way down and ended up in a tree. And then a tree branch fell, the money's, you know, stuck to it. And the, and the, the, the log or the branch, you know, was taken to Tina Barr. Um, you know, the other thing I thought is, and, and I've kind of done research into, and this is a little morbid, but 
how how you know a, a body that has spent months decomposing is it still buoyant? Could Cooper's body himself have been the mechanism that transported that money uh, down the Columbia? Because that money, from what I've been, I think um, uh, actually I think Martin Andrade said that the money is only buoyant for about 15 minutes before it sinks. And according to Tom Kay's research, it didn't get wet. It didn't fan out until um, it, it, it got to Tina Bar. So it brings up a lot of questions and I don't have all the answers for it. But I think if you think about this logically, if you look at the Tina Bar money fine, if you look at the central flight path, the only way to logically uh, square those two, triangulate those two, um, is is that that money ended up in the Columbia and was transported by unknown mechanisms and and I and I hate to just kind of have question marks there but we don't know I don't think we'll ever know um, and and I do think that there's evidence to suggest that the jump was later than than people think I think most people originally they thought it was right around eight eleven eight twelve but that's just when the oscillations were reported and the pressure bumps not reported in any of the the uh, transcripts or anything like that. Um, all we have to go on now is statements from um, the pilots who said that, well, we were approaching the lights, that we could see the lights of the suburbs of Portland coming up, but we hadn't crossed the Columbia yet. Um, so that means it could have happened 813, 814, 815, 816. Um, I think by 817, it was just crossing the Columbia. So you have three or four minutes there where, you know, who knows, maybe he was standing on the edge of the stairs and, you know, considering his options, maybe it wasn't too late to turn around and turn himself in. Who knows? Um, but I, I think if you look at the preponderance of evidence, I think that's the most likely scenario. It's interesting you say you believe he could have jumped in the Columbia because I had Matt Lamadou on the show, uh, Air Force, PJ, Navy SEAL, smoke jumper, all around badass. And he said if he was planning this, he would plan to jump in the Columbia. Yeah. But, you know, and that's the, that's, that's the other, the rub here, is we don't know who, I mean, <laughs> we don't know who Cooper was. We don't know if he was an experienced jumper. We don't know if he was a novice. Uh, we don't know if he'd had zero jumps, if he'd had 150 jumps. We don't know. Uh, there's been evidence both ways. I, I think in Tosau's book, it says that he checked the packing cards. Uh, if he checked the packing cards, and that would lead one to believe that he had some experience because those things are hard to find. And if you're an experienced jumper, you want to know who packed it. If he didn't check the packing cards, then that would indicate to me he's a novice. Um, and if he's a novice, that's a difficult jump. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's a difficult, it has a high degree of difficulty. He's jumping out of a jetliner going close to 200 miles an hour. It's at night. The weather is suboptimal. It's cold and wet. He's jumping over unknown terrain. Uh, doesn't know how high the hills and mountains are. As far as we know, he doesn't have an altimeter. He doesn't have a helmet. Uh, doesn't have jump boots. So when you start adding in all of those conditions, if you're a novice jumper and you put in, and, and then to add, add another thing is he's got 25 to 30 pounds strapped tied to his body and money. And that makes for an uneven, uh, 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 uneven, um, object in the sky. It, it, it causes, it can cause uh, uncontrollable spins if that thing's, um, not equal. Um, so he had to have everything go right for him, for him to 
land on the ground, in my opinion. That's a that's a jump with a high degree of difficulty. Um, not impossible, but I, I think any experienced jumper will tell you that. Yeah, I could probably do it, but it, you know, it, it's not easy. And I and I think you take a novice. If you're a skydiver instructor, and you take somebody up in a jetliner in those conditions at night, unknown terrain, no altimeter, you're using a parachute you're not familiar with, you got no equipment. And you tell them, hey, go jump. The person would get sued for negligent homicide, right? Uh, so I, I, it really comes down to whether he was a novice or whether he's experienced. Now, your guest was an experienced jumper. So for him, making a water landing at night in those conditions probably wouldn't have been too difficult. But if you're an inexperienced skydiver, if it's me or you, I don't know if you've had any skydiving experience. I know I haven't, but I wouldn't make that jump. Uh so certainly not by myself. Well, even Mark Metzler on the show, 50 years of skydiving experience, he said he would never choose a water landing. Right, right. But yeah. I guess that's the difference between a sport parachutist uh, versus Matt Lamadou, who probably has, you know, 250 right. jumps into water at night. Right. Or, or some guy who's maybe had four, five, six jumps under his belt and... Did a little bit of practice here and there just to kind of, you know, get the ins and outs, just to get the basics and then decided, all right, I'm going to go for it. That might have been Cooper. He may have been a novice at this and and just bit off more than he could chew. The only thing that suggests that maybe he didn't land in the Columbia, like I said, is, is Tom K's research. I don't necessarily think the money got wet that night, which indicates to me Cooper landed on ground. Whether he was alive or dead when he landed. I don't know. I think there's evidence to suggest both ways. Um, the fact that there's no missing persons that matches him um, is suggestive that he survived and got away with it. Uh, on the other hand, um, the the guy that you had recently on the uh, uh, Alfred Fr uh, Friedman, um, the Arthur Friedberg, Friedberg, right? The the numismatist, right? Yep. So. And that's the kind of stuff, Darren, that I love is that you get the experts on, you get the people who can really speak to it, because I think it's kind of been taken for granted in the Cooper Vortex what that, well, you know, there's no way that money could have ever, you know, not shown up or, or, or there's no way that a teller would have gone through pages and pages of serial numbers and tried to match it up. So it would have been easy for that money to just disappear into the uh, the circulation of currency. And, and, and he straight up said, no, I, I really think there's a, a, a high a high probability that if that money entered the, uh, entered into the circulation, it would have been discovered. And I think that shook a lot of people up in the vortex because I think people just assumed that that wouldn't have been a problem for Cooper to launder and, and, and wash that money. I, I certainly thought he was going to say, oh, yeah, he probably could have spent it. Yeah. I mean, I was surprised to hear him say, oh, yeah, it would have been found. And what's funny is that he is the expert of experts. Like you said, he literally wrote the book on this stuff. Uh, I, I don't think you could have found a more um, a, a better guest, a, a more credentialed guest than him to speak on that subject. And yet there are still people in the vortex who are like, well... Maybe he doesn't know all the facts of the case, so it's still possible. And it's just like, look, the guy is an expert on this. Just because it doesn't match your theory, maybe you need to change your theory instead of trying to 
uh, you know, go, go against the expert here. So I think the fact that the money didn't end up in circulation is suggestive that he he died uh, because why would you why would you risk your life for two hundred thousand dollars and then you know keep it in a Folgers coffee jar, you know, or or several hundred of them in your attic. After that interview, I I tried to look up cases where they were given ransom money that the serial numbers were known or the bills were marked in a certain way. And I couldn't really find a good example because it, it usually comes back. All the money is found in one bundle um, right. or, or the people get caught one way or another. I couldn't find a good case where there was a lot of money that went into circulation and yeah. was found that way. Right. Right. And, and you know, maybe, maybe he's wrong. I mean, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe he's wrong and, and the money did was able to survive, you know, circulation and not be discovered, but he seemed to suggest that it's not. And if I'm going to believe somebody, I'm going to believe an expert. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that that's suggestive that he didn't, he didn't make it, but I think at the end of the day, Cooper, my opinion is Cooper probably was not successful. He either died, um, with the money strapped to him or the money, somehow became dislodged from his person during the jump and he was able to land successfully and, uh, but, but not have the money with him. So I think either way, I, I don't think he was successful with the crime. I fact, I think the fact that the money was found on Tina Barr is suggestive that he didn't get away with it because, you know, why would he leave six grand? You know, I, I, I don't, um, I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. But I, I think I, I, I don't know if Cooper lived or died, but I, I'm pretty sure that he he wasn't successful, uh, wasn't a successful criminal. What would you put the odds on he lived versus he died? Oh, boy. And I go back and forth on this. I used to be a hardcore. There's no way he he made it. I, I'd probably say two out of three chances he, he died. I, I think I think that the fact I think the chances that he's dead. Uh, that he died is probably about 67%, I'll say. Um, I give him a one in three chance of survival. Oh, I'm surprised by that. I mean, the other, the copycats all lived. Yeah, I, I know, but I, we know about them. And and the conditions weren't exactly the same. And, and I have an inkling that Cooper wasn't as experienced as people make him out to be. Because you see, the thing is, is people want Cooper to live, right? I mean, you've said it on your I own do. show, is that you want in your mind, you want Cooper to have lived and landed in a, a field and, and walked off into the night, you know, with a big smile on his face, $200,000 richer. That's the great Hollywood ending, right? But, um, but I, 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 I don't know. I, 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 I think people want that so badly for him to have survived that they need to find suspects that can make that possible. And that's why they come around with people who have who are smoke jumpers, who are parachutists, uh, sport parachutists, people who were super soldiers and special forces guys, guys that could have made it. Uh, because I think if he was a novice who just maybe attended a couple skydiving classes and, and then attempted this wild jump, I don't think he would have been successful. I don't think he would have lived. Um, so people want Cooper to have survived. So I, I think they, I think they create these suspects who kind of fit this super soldier Rambo Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of guy to, to be able to make that possible. And, and I don't know if I necessarily see Cooper as that kind of guy. So yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't, I, I would give him a less than 50% chance of survival. If he dies in the jump, why haven't we found him? That's, 
I'm, that's why it's I'm giving him a one out of three chance. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I can't answer that. I don't know. I like I said, there's evidence that both ways. You know, I will tell you, I I looked um, uh, into the NamUs database. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all, but it's the uh, uh, North American missing missing and unidentified persons system. And uh, unfortunately, I, I recently read that it's actually short on funding and it's going to shut down in 2021, which is terrible. Um, but I, I have spent hours on that database uh, looking at missing persons around that time, people who matched Cooper's description, people who didn't. Um, you can search for unidentified remains. So I, I looked for that to see if I f- could find somebody that might be uh, might be analogous to Cooper and 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 there's just nothing. But there was one guy, um, a guy by the name of, oh my gosh, what was his name? Um, Carson, Roger Glenn Carson. And he went missing in 1972. His car was found at the Golden Gate Bridge and he was never seen again from 1972 on, but he wasn't reported missing until 2008. What? Yeah. So he, his name finally was added. He was reported as missing. His name was added to the database in 2008, even though he went missing in 72. Uh, so, I mean, do I think that's what happened with Cooper? I don't know. But uh, I, there's an example of, you know, somebody having that happen to them. Um, and then I, you, the other thing that I find interesting in, in my research with this is that Native Americans oftentimes are underreported as missing people. Um, because they have their own law enforcement, their own jurisdiction. And um, th- there's oftentimes foul ups with, with um, uh, law enforcement where they don't get reported as missing and they kind of just fall through the cracks. And I find that interesting because Cooper was described as darker complected. Um, and, and there's even some suggestion that he may have been uh, American Indian. So are you familiar with uh, the MMA fighter commentator? I think his name's Chael Sonnen. Yes. I'm, yes. I'm sure I butchered that pronunciation. No, I think you nailed it. Uh, he, he talks about his parents knew D.B. Cooper and really? was a Native American gentleman. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's a possibility. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's difficult because there aren't a whole lot of missing persons from that time. You would think that if he, you know, if he splashed down in the Columbia or he lawn darted into the mud, uh, you'd think, you know, somebody would be wondering, hey, mom, how come dad didn't show up for Thanksgiving dinner? And how come we haven't seen him in, you know, 40 years? So, but there, you know, or a parked car at the at the Portland airport that keeps getting parking tickets and is finally towed away. And, uh, but as far as we know, there's nothing like that. So it would seem to indicate that maybe he lived. So, but I... I then the money, it wasn't ever spent, and uh, the, the difficulty of the jump, I don't know. Uh, I, I, think it, I think it could, there's a possibility he lived. I think ultimately, I think the evidence suggests that he was probably unsuccessful, and he didn't get away with it. Was this bomb real? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me that question, because you ask every guest that question. Uh, I I, I don't think so. I I think most of the descriptions indicate that the dynamite was probably road flares. And, uh, and and why would he really, why would he bring a, why would he go through all of that effort to bring a real bomb? Was he really going to kill himself if he didn't get the money? Was he really going to bring down an entire jetliner because they didn't deliver the money to him? I don't know. That's, 
that's pretty extreme. I mean, you're, you're, that's, that's pretty rough. If, if he was prepared to do that, I, I think it would be much smarter for him to, to make a real looking bomb, but, but have it be completely inert and uh, just threaten the crew. But, but, you know, I mean, I think if push came to shove, he'd rather spend his life in prison than getting blown apart at 15,000 feet. So I tend to think, no, I, I tend to think it was fake, but, uh, but maybe, I, you know, who, I don't think we'll ever know. I don't think we'll ever know the answers to, to a lot of these questions, unfortunately. Yeah. And I mean, the, the description of the bomb as well, it, like the stereotypical, like it, like Bugs Bunny would have carried that bomb. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's you're right. It's, 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 it's a template for, for any type of, 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 of random bomb. So I, I, you know, that, and I think he did that intentionally so he could show it to her and she knew immediately what it was. Um, but who knows, maybe it was real. Maybe he was, he was crazy. Um, so I don't know, but I tend to think, no, the bomb, the bomb was not, uh, bomb was not real. It was, it was a fake. It's been said that he had a second bag with him, like a canvas sack or a brown paper bag. Yeah. That's, is that a weird piece of evidence? Cause I don't know. I don't, you hardly hear anything about that. And, uh, I don't even know necessarily how large it was. Cause sometimes you get those, uh, you know, like those little brown bags that you can keep like liquor bottles in, you know, the, the kind of tall, narrow ones, or was right. it, or was it like a big brown grocery bag that your mom used to carry groceries in from the store? I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what the description of that, that brown bag was, but yeah, that's interesting. Cause who knows what he was keeping in there? You know, another piece of evidence, and I actually brought this up to Bruce Smith and, um, and, and I, I, I can't recall the answer that he gave me, but uh, in one of the books that I read, it mentions that Cooper had stimulants of some kind, like uh, uh, amphetamine, um, and he offered it to the pilots in case they got tired on their flight down to Mexico. Have you ever heard that before? Yes. Uh, Nikki brought this up to me. I can't remember the name of the the drug. Yeah. I, but it, it was, was like one of those stay awake pills. Yeah. Yeah. It was like amphetamines or, or something, ephedrine or something. But um, I found that interesting. And again, that's another kind of small detail that's overlooked. And I think it adds to that character of D.B. Cooper is I, I don't know that a lot of people his age carried around uppers, <laughs> you know? So was he carrying those, those upper pills in, in the bag and, and, um, you know, and then it's, it strikes me as interesting too, because I think one of the, the, the flight attendants said that he acted like giddy when the money arrived, like child, like a child on Christmas. Yeah, uh, exactly. And we, we have this, this image in our head of D.B. Cooper as this real stoic, uh, you know, kind of no nonsense guy. And then for, you know, like his eyes to light up and act like a kid on Christmas when the money arrived is very odd detail, in my opinion. It's, doesn't quite fit our our picture of, of of the guy. So, and then there's the whole story about him breaking up a fight between a, a cowboy and another passenger. Have you heard that one? Yes. So it, yeah. So it's just like these these weird anecdotes of, of the case that just I, I, it just makes me want to be on that flight, kind of just to just to kind of see the how it went down. And, and I've actually considered writing like a not a, a fictional account of the case. Um, and, and not get necessarily like trying to find out who did it, but, uh, but just kind of go through like what exactly happened on that flight, you know, t- piece by piece and anecdote by anecdote. Cause I, I think that's, 
that's pretty interesting. And I think sometimes those details get glossed over and maybe they'll, maybe they're important. I've fantasized so many times about if I could go back to November 24th, 1971 and get a ticket on that plane yeah, just to be able to look at him and I'd tell him you're yeah. going to get away with this man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, you think, you think he got away scot-free, which is, you know, good for you. That's, but <laughs> so, so Darren, I have a question for you. Would yeah. you rather know how he did it? All of the details, the planning and, and the execution, but not know who it was, or would you rather know who it was, have a name, but not know how it went down? I would rather know the entire story without the name. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm I'm much less unconcerned about his identity, and I am much more interested in in how it went down, uh, what went on on the plane, what happened after he jumped, how the money ended up on Tina Bar. Those are the questions that fascinate me. I I'm really kind of almost uninterested in in finding out his identity. It, it, it's not really what I find most important. Personally, I know people have dedicated their like I, I think Mark Metzler said that, you know, he, he, he really doesn't care about any of that stuff. He just wants to find out who did it, which I totally respect and understand. Um, that's just I, I'm with you. I'd much rather know how he executed it. Yeah, I want to know the details about the planning. I want to know he's on the plane and something didn't go according to plan. Did he have a backup plan? Was he prepared for that contingency? I want to know what happened when his boots hit the ground after mm-hmm. jumping out of the plane, where mm-hmm. he went, what he did. Yep. 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 That's I what agree. I want to know. If, Me if, too. if I find out that it's Eddie Thomas tomorrow, um, and he died but 10 I don't years get to ago. know the story. Yeah. Yeah. Then. I, that's just my worst nightmare for this case. Yeah, no, me, me too. I, yeah, that would, and it's the same thing with the Zodiac is, you know, I certainly, I want to find who the Zodiac was and, and know the identity, but I, I just kind of want to know how he went about constructing his codes and, 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 and his mindset when he went into it. And, and that's far less, far more interesting to me than just finding out what his name was. So I, I, I agree with you. And I think we're in the minority in the Cooper Vortex. I think people are far more interested in who rather than what and how. I don't know. I mean, if it does get solved, we know who it is, but no story, then then it's not really solved. Then you have to figure out what this guy did, what kind of life he lived, who right. he was. Yeah. So then it would continue a little bit, and I guess you'd get people speculating on, on how Eddie Thomas pulled it off. But yeah. Yeah, that's not what I want. I want to know that he was reading these books with a smile on his face. Yeah. 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 Do, do you think it'll be solved? Do you think we'll find out who did it? I, I truly don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm dubious. I, I'm really doubtful that we'll, we'll find out. I, I really think that um, the DNA stuff that came out recently was, was really disheartening. I, I, I'm not sure that there's, I, I think DNA is probably our best chance of solving the case. And I'm not sure there is any. Um, I guess we'll But even to. if DNA is what solves the case, Cooper's most likely dead at this point. Yeah. I mean, he's at least 85 years old right now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't think the case is going to be solved. I don't think that a lot of our answers will ever be solved. And I think that's why the case, the vortex pulls so many people in and never lets him go because they, they want to know the answers and they just won't ever find them. And they just can't, they can't let it go. 
you know, I watched that HBO documentary recently. I'm sure you watched it. Um, that had uh, Joe Weber and, and Bruce on there and everyone. And I thought the pro- uh, producer said something really poignant uh, toward the end of that. He said that uh, this case has left a D.B. Cooper-sized hole in lots of people's lives. And uh, I, I, that really struck me. That really resonated with me because between the, the Cooper case and the Zodiac case, there are so many people whose lives have just been sucked into this and people are just so consumed by it. And uh, I mean, I have seen people lose marriages and strained relationships with their children and finances and, and just because they've become so obsessed with, with these cases and, and trying to solve them. And, and uh, it's, it's sad for a lot of these people. It's sad. And I, I really, I find myself fortunate that I'm able to kind of uh, come and go as I please in the vortex because some people really get sucked in and they just they have to find the answers to these and 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 sadly I don't know if they ever will. What do you think that is? It, there is a certain type of person, and I mean, we could both name twenty five people who are in these cases over forty hours a week. Yo, oh for sure, oh for sure, yeah. I I, I don't know. I, 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 I can't play armchair psychiatrist. I know for me, as a person who isn't consumed by it, who sees it more as a hobby rather than a, a life-consuming passion, is I have oftentimes more important things to do with my time. <laughs> I mean, I, I, have, I have a full-time job. I have a marriage. I have uh, three children that I love. I have so many more things that I'm passionate about than just this. And I'm simply not willing to sacrifice my job, my marriage, my relationship with my kids to solve a case. Um, and, um, I, I, that, and I just, I'm just speaking for myself. Um, you know, the other thing that's interesting about the Cooper case is, and, I, and it's not true necessarily with the Zodiac, but people love to try to make money off of the Cooper case. Have you kind of noticed that, that a lot of people use it as a grift, like whether they want to sell books or whether they want to do documentaries or, I mean, everybody's looking to try to make a buck off of Cooper. And uh, certainly, but I think that is, that exists in every one of these things. I mean, conspiracy theory, flat earth, uh, true crime. Yeah, I I get it. I get it. But I, I think a lot of people are have is so much invested in this case uh monetarily financially uh in terms of time and energy and they've just put so much into it that it's almost um they can't extricate themselves from it because it would be a a, a failure you know that they they would if you dedicated so many years to this and so much energy and money and, and and time into this at some point, you, it's almost impossible to say, well, I just give up because that would just be a, you'd look back and be like, wow, that was a colossal waste of, of resources. Uh, I, oh, made- I think a lot of people feel that way. Yeah. I mean, myself included. Yeah, but I don't it's know. Like you can't yeah. leave the Cooper vortex because it's not done yet. Yeah. It's like, you There's know, no end. Yeah. That you just have to keep going. <laughs> It's, you know, when you're good, it's like the, what is it? Churchill said, if you're going through hell, keep going. Um, you, you just got to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And I think that's where people, a lot of people get lost in it. And uh, honestly, I'm, I'm fortunate where I can, you know, I, I have 
times where I, I get distracted. I have this going on in my life. I have that going on in my life. I, I can't dedicate as much time to it. And, and I walk away from it for months, years, and then something will spur my interest and, and I'll come right back to it. And, and, um, it, it, it's, uh, I don't know if that's true for, for a lot of people. I think a lot of people get consumed by it. It's not just Cooper. It's a Zodiac case too. People get, I mean, I know, I know a guy who he, he wrote a, a book and he, his marriage failed. He, his, his relationship with his kids restrained his finances, his, his mental health suffered because of his all consuming passion for the case. And boy, I just, I, I don't, I don't want that to be me. Me neither. You got to stop me before that happens to me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love, I love the case. I love talking Cooper. I love learning. I love, I love the, the, the community, but I, I don't want to get into a position where I, I look back and I'm like, man, what a colossal waste of time. <laughs> you know, what, what, what about all the things that I have thrown away in pursuit of this quixotic, uh, you know, it, it's, it, that would just be heartbreaking to me. So, yeah. And you know, the, the thing is, uh, Darren too, is, uh, the thing about your podcast is that it's ostensibly, ostensibly about DB Cooper, but it's really about the people in the vortex and the, 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 the cast of characters that occupy that space. And I mean, there are, I won't name names, but there are some really awesome people and some really wild characters who occupy the vortex and are in this community. And, and I think your podcast, sure, it talks about Cooper, and that's an important thing. And but it it really is a is a way for you to bring these cast of characters to life. And uh, I think that's I think that's great. And, and the other thing too, as a strange parallel, is that the suspects that these other characters bring are characters in and of themselves. I mean, so oh, absolutely. I mean, out, even if some of these suspects weren't DB Cooper they could still have awesome biographies written about them. You know, Ted Mayfield and, and Rekka and McCoy and, and all, you know, all of these guys lived awesome, cool lives, even if they weren't D.B. Cooper. So I think that, that your, your podcast serves as a way to kind of show the world these very cool characters and then the very cool suspects that these characters kind of uh, promote, which I, I think that's a cool thing. Thank you. One thing that you've done recently that's very cool is you posted on the Cooper forum about a week ago that you ran some of the tie evidence by a, a friend in metallurgy. Well, yes, that's a complicated <laughs> that's a complicated story, but it wasn't actually me. I, there was a a person that I communicate with on that Discord, and he ran Tom K's data. The 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 data that uh, Tom K got off of the tie, uh, the, the special metals and the titanium and all of that stuff. And he said, Hey, went to some metallurgists, people interested in metallurgy. And he said, Hey, what do you guys think of this? And they came back with some really compelling evidence. And he uh, shared that with me. And I said, well, you know, I, I actually have Tom K's email and I, I'm, I'm a professor. We're both academics. He may be more likely to answer my email. Why don't I present that to him and I did. And, and he came back and Tom was very gracious. We spoke on the phone and everything. And he came back with some of his own thoughts on it. And uh, I waited on it. And then I asked my friend, the, the, uh, 
on the Discord, I said, you know, can I bring this up in the Vortex? I think some people on the Vortex might might take some interest in this. And uh, I posted it on there, and I got one reply, and it just said, good outreach. <laughs> I know more uh, about it, but, but I think it's really, really compelling, uh, that evidence myself, is because uh, with Tom Kay, some of the conclusions that he came was that um, uh, Cooper may have been a manager working near a uh, metalwork um, or, or a metal shop. Um, and what these metallurgists said by reviewing this Tom K's evidence was that they feel that D.B. Cooper or whoever was wearing the tie was actually in close proximity to the titanium and close proximity to these uh, unusual metals. And that indicated to, uh, to them that he was probably a chemist who was uh, working directly with these things, with melting down of, um, of titanium and whatnot. Um, in fact, one of the person, uh, one of the people on there uh, that we spoke with said that what was identified as titanium sponge or, or sponge titanium was actually um, uh, melted titanium. Um, and uh, that to me was pretty interesting. So, uh, and they, they recommended some places where he had, uh, he may have worked directly with this. So that was an interesting avenue I thought uh, could have used some more exploring. And that's why I presented it and it really didn't get a whole lot of traction. So um, who knows? Uh, I'll try to follow up with it myself and, and see. But uh, I, um, I I was a little disappointed that, uh, that it didn't get a little bit more. But uh, yeah, uh, they seem to think that Cooper might have been a chemist. Well, what? One thing that I think is really interesting about that is Max Gunther's book in 1985 says Cooper worked in industrial chemicals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Gunther's book is so bizarre. It's hard for me to even wrap my head around it. I, I, I well said, I, I, I'm not even sure how to think about it. It's, it's so easy to just be like, oh, there's no chance. It's, you know, this is BS. But there's just so many odd connections and coincidences, it's hard to dismiss. I, I, I really am not sure how to think about it. <laughs> I, 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 it's, that's a weird one. That's a real weird one. So, but yeah, I, 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 think, that that's a, I think that's an avenue worth exploring. Um, and even Tom said that at that time, um, the, a lot of these places were switching over to titanium piping. Um, and, um, you know, that could be another avenue for getting the titanium on the tie. But I, I think Tom has done such a, a, a wonderful job moving this case forward. I mean, where would this case be if it weren't for Tom K's research into the tie and into the diatoms? I, I mean, we'd still be talking the same stuff and rehashing the same old theories. Tom's really getting into it and getting his hands dirty and really doing awesome research that's moved this case forward probably more than anybody. Um, so my, my hat's off to Tom and, and, and I really, like I said before, with the, uh, the numismatists that you had on, those are the types of people I want to, I want to hear from. I want to know what they have to say. I want to hear from experts. Uh, I want to hear from people who, uh, what they have to say about this stuff. Um, those are the people we should be listening to, uh, in my opinion. So yeah, my, my hat's off to Tom for, for the, for that research. It's crazy that all the forensic Science work in this case has been done by a guy 
who made his money in paintball and is doing this for fun. Yeah. And he's a paleontologist, right? Yeah. I, mean, I think his background is paleontology, which is is only tangent, uh, tangentially related to the case. I guess the, the, the money could kind of be <laughs> considered paleontology, I guess, maybe. But, uh, but yeah, I, you know, um, but he has, he's done, a, he's done a great job. And, you know, I would love to see, what I would love to see is have like, um, you have a metallurgist on your show and, and, you know, say, Hey, here's Tom K's data. What do you think of this? And have him come back and hear from him and have you talk to him about the metal on the tie or, uh, have a, you know, somebody like a hydrologist who is, a uh, works on the Columbia river. Hey, talk to us about the currents on the Columbia river. How is it possible that something could end up on Tina bar? Because well, funny we, you say that. I actually invited on a gal who was an expert on diatoms in the Columbia River. Yes, and yes. I messaged her, "Hey, would you like to come on the show to discuss the diatoms in the river?" And she was like, "Yeah, I don't know anything about DB Cooper, but I sure know about diatoms in the Columbia River. I'd love to be on the show." Yeah, those. And, are the- and then I get a message back from her like a week later. Um, basically I was unfamiliar with DB Cooper. I have no interest in coming on the show. No, I was like, dang. Oh man, that's too bad. Cause I would have loved to have heard from someone like that. You know, those are the people that I want to hear from. Cause I think, I think that vortex has kind of become this echo chamber where the same people are promoting the same things and saying the same things. And I would like to get opinions from people outside the vortex and have them come in and, 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 you know, Hey, what do you have to say about the diatoms? You know, what do you have to say about the metal on the tie? You know, what do you have to say about, you know, the, the sage radar? I'm sure you could find people who could come on and, and, and speak to those. Uh, those are the people I really think um, are, are, are the people that really uh, attract my interest. And, and those are the people I want to learn from because, you know, I, I'm an academic. I, I take my cues from experts. If someone is an expert in a field and, and they have a, a strong opinion about something and they can provide evidence, then, then I'm going to listen to them far more than I'm going to listen to them armchair detective who, um, you know, may or may not know what they're talking about. So, uh, but yeah, I, I think that that's the, those are the types of people that are going to move the case forward now are those metallurgists, those hydrologists, those, uh, you know, uh, people, the, the diatom people who were, those are the people who are going to move the case in, a forward direction rather than just kind of remaining status quo. It's not going to be anybody like me who's going to make some startling, you know, revelation about the case. And um, I, I, I don't expect to be the one that solves DB Cooper. Do you? Do you think you're going to be the one that solves DB Cooper? I'm not going to be the one who solves it. Cause I, I almost think I'm not even investigating the case anymore. I'm just. Yeah. The one that hosts the show. You know, what's funny is I really don't know how even to describe myself to people. I, I, I'm not I'm not a D.B. Cooper expert. I, I'm not a researcher necessarily. I'm not, I guess I'm kind of an investigator. I, <laughs> I, I, I'm, 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 I'm interested in the case. I really don't know how to how necessarily to describe myself. But uh, yeah, I think I, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, I, I'm not going to be the one that solves the case, but hopefully you'll have the person who solves it on your show. I'd like to have Dan Cooper on the show. So if you're listening, Dan Cooper, yeah, well, I'd you like you just your announcement on the show. Is if, if Cooper survived, let's say he lost the money in the jump and he survived, wouldn't that be 
the number one reason to stay silent all these years is because who would want to come forward and say, yeah, I was D.B. Cooper, but I didn't tie the money on tight enough and it came off mid-jump. And I, I, I went back to my crappy job at the chemistry lab. <laughs> you know, that would be, there would be no way anybody would come forward and admit that. So that could be a reason we haven't heard from Cooper in all these years is because he's just too embarrassed. But you also wouldn't have to admit that because no one really knows. He could say, oh, yeah, I got away with all the money. True. Yeah, true, true, true. So he could lie. He could lie. And, you know, that's that's one thing that I think another aspect of this case that I find is, is, is intriguing is with the Zodiac Killer case, there's no doubt in anybody's mind that he was a bad dude. I mean, he was a villain. You know, he was uh, uh, he was just all around a, a murderer. So there's no question about that. With Cooper, his morality is a little more ambiguous, right? Uh, there's a lot of debate. Is he a hero? Is he an anti-hero? Is he a villain? Um, I think a lot of people want to view him as kind of like, haha, stuck it to the man. And, you know, they root for him and, and want him to survive. And I have never seen the case that way. I have always seen D.B. Cooper as a bad guy, um, as a villain. Um, he, you know, he, he threatened the lives of, of several people in hopes of getting rich. And I, I think when you watch that HBO documentary and you saw the flight crew being re-interviewed after all these years, you could still see the emotion. I mean, uh, Radichak got emotional even all these years later. Um, Scott got emotional talking about it. Uh, I think, um, um, I think the flight, uh, both the flight attendants were emotionally traumatized by it. Um, I, I think he was a bad dude. I think he was a, I think he was a villain and I, I don't have any, any love lost for him at all. If I, I hope, I hope he died in the jump and I hope his last few seconds were filled with fear and panic because I, I, I really don't have any sympathy for him at all. So and I, and again, that probably puts me in the minority in the in the Cooper vortex because I, I think I think a lot of people recognize that what he did was a crime, but I don't I think they gloss over the fact of how much he terrorized the people, um, the flight crew on that on that plane for that many hours. Well, I think Himmelsback would definitely agree with you. Oh, I think, I think he, he yeah. was really frustrated that you know in his hometown of of Portland that Cooper had become sort of this hero. Right, and I think that had a lot to do with Himmelsback going around and saying he was a sleazy, rotten crook. And, yeah, yeah, and sort of exaggerating how bad of a guy he was. Right, and I think as a result, I think Himmelsback got a reputation as kind of a grouch, and and people were kind of like, ah, you know, he's just a disgruntled FBI agent who's mad because he couldn't solve the case. But um, and, and maybe that's partially true, but. Uh, yeah, I've always seen Cooper as, as the villain in all of this and not as the good guy, not as the anti-hero who, um, you know, he certainly didn't give the money away to the poor. So, you know, he's not a Robin Hood. Um, I, I just, I, I don't, I, I, I hope he's brought to, I mean, I, obviously, like you said, he'd be in his 80s now, but I hope he's caught. I hope he's brought to justice or uh, I hope justice was served one way or the other. But I, I, I don't see Cooper as an anti-hero at all. Why do you think he chose the name Dan Cooper? I think it's a common name. I think he could have chosen Joe Smith or, you know, uh, William Johnson or any kind of common 
name, any common alias. I, I think Dan Cooper doesn't really have, I mean, Cooper's a pretty common surname. Dan is a common first name. Um, I, I just think, I just think he chose it because it was a pretty generic pseudonym. Um, I don't think it had anything to do with the comic book. Um, how could you say that? I, I just, I mean, I could be wrong. Like I said, I'm prepared to be wrong. I'm not an expert, but I just, I find that, I mean, yes, Dan Cooper, the comic book jumped out of airplanes, but not the same way Cooper did. Um, and, and Dan Cooper was a hero in the comic books and, and Cooper wasn't, um, it's possible, but I mean, I can't think of any comic books growing up where I'd want to use a pseudonym of, of somebody in the comic book. Um, why leave that clue? You know, um, I think it's far more likely that he just kept the name as generic as possible. So, um, but I could be wrong. Maybe he's French Canadian who, you know, used to be in the Belgian air force or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> why do you think so many people have confessed to this crime? I, I think, I think it goes along with what we just talked about with the fact that he's kind of an anti-hero, right? He's kind of a folk hero and uh, people want to be associated with that, right? Nobody confesses on their deathbed to being a Zodiac killer because who would want to die with their family members thinking that you murdered five people and terrorized an entire region of the country. But with Cooper, it's a little different. Cooper's is viewed with a little more sympathy and uh, people respect Cooper a little bit. Or, hey, you know, he got away with it. He stuck it to the man and got away with it. Isn't that cool? Um, and I think people want to be cool. And, you know, that may be a, 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 a facile answer, but I, I think I think that's probably the most likely one. People, people want to be associated in their last moments with something important, something significant, um, and for lack of a better word, something cool. So I think they confessed to being D.B. Cooper. I mean, who, like, uh, what was it? Bruce Smith in the HBO documentary, didn't he say, I, I, I want to be D.B. Cooper? We all want to be, yeah. we all want to be D.B. Cooper. Yeah, yep. I think he was onto something. And I think that's why so many people confess to it on their deathbed, because it's their last moment in the sun, so to speak. You said you don't have a suspect, but there are a lot of suspects. Yes, indeed. Who are, who are some of the suspects that get a lot of attention that annoy you? <laughs> That is a loaded question, Darren. You are going to get me in so much trouble um, because I'm going to say some names and the people who peddle those suspects are just going to eat me alive. Um, <laughs> I, uh, you're tough. Yeah. I, who annoy me? Well, I don't know if there's anybody that annoys me necessarily. I, I think um, people that still hold on to suspects that have been eliminated by DNA um, and, you know, just refuse to, to let them go. Um, those, you know, or, or where there's direct evidence where they, 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 they weren't involved and, and they just refuse to let it go. Any um, suspects in particular? Well, I mean, I, I think Sheridan Peterson is the one that jumps to mind. You know, I mean, I, I think, it's it's pretty clear. I, you know, I know Eric Willis is is going to get mad at me for saying it because I know he's a he's a, a Peterson guy. Um, but you know the eyes don't match. I know it says that his DNA came back inconclusive. Um, but I, I, I mean, I, I think if the DNA came back conclusive, Peterson would have been arrested, um, and he wasn't. So I think that was it's pretty indicative that the the DNA didn't match for him. Um, he said that he was in Nepal. 
Uh, it seems that he has passports to support that. Um, so it, it, he, he's just one of those guys where there's just a lot of evidence that points against him. Um, but, but he's still a top suspect. Um, so, you know, he, he's just one guy that jumps to mind. Or Richard McCoy is another one. I don't think he matches the, the, uh, the description so much. Um, but, you know, but the thing about these guys is there's always, there, there's, there's always that lingering doubt, you know, there's always that one or two things where it makes you say, well, maybe, um, but, uh, but regardless, they're all really, really interesting, interesting people. I, you know, the two that I am most, I don't have a suspect, but I think the two that are most intriguing to me is, um, is, uh, William Gossett. I think he was an absolutely fascinating character. And I think his son's story is really fascinating. And then Lexi. I totally agree. And there's a lot of mysterious stuff around him that yeah. I've still kind of yet to crack. Right. It's very intriguing. I, and I'm not saying it's him, but he, he's intriguing. And, and then Lepsy, uh, I think that's an interesting story because he was, he's a missing person. And that was kind of a rabbit hole that I dove deep down was trying to find missing people that uh, matched kind of that, that description. So, uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, but there's so many interesting people, Barb Dayton. I mean, who, who doesn't think that's a cool story? You know, I mean, the, I would love Barb Dayton to be Cooper cause that would just be awesome. Um, but then there's just so many people who are just interesting. They're just great characters. Like I said, Mayfield and, and Rekka and McCoy and Rackstraw. I mean, these super soldier spy guys who, who, I mean, that's just awesome. You know, those, those are like, I mean, I grew up on Rambo and, and, Arnold Schwarzenegger and all of that. And, uh, you know, th those are the guys I think are just very, very cool, whether they're Cooper or not. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think the two that I, I am most intrigued by are Lepsy and, and Gossett. I, I listened to um, Gossett's son on your podcast and he, he really came off as credible. You know, he, he, he came off as very sincere. He did. I also, uh, he wanted to have dinner with me before, the show, which I didn't really want to do because we would end up discussing things that yeah. we'd probably talk about on the show. Right. But right. one thing Greg really wanted to get from me was that I wasn't doing some crazy show and going to pigeonhole into him into saying something that he didn't really say. Right. Right. Yeah. And so that even kind of made me believe him a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he did. He seemed intelligent. He was articulate. He, 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 he had his, had his story together. Um, I, I, it doesn't appear that he has anything to gain by it. I don't think he's trying to hawk a book or a, a TV show or anything. I No, not at all. I mean, I tracked him down, asked if he'd yeah. come on the show. Yeah, yeah. So And he just, he seems to just want to know the answer and then move on with his life. Right. Like, I, I think if I told Greg tomorrow, we found out 100% it was your dad. He would say, okay, cool, and then get back on with his life. Right, right. Or the right. other way. It wasn't your dad 100%. Right. He'd, okay, cool, and yeah. then continue on. And that's another thing that kind of complicates things, too, is that we've talked about the reason why people make deathbed confessions, but you have people who alive and and possibly confess or, or want people to think that they're Cooper, right? Uh, you know, maybe, maybe Gossett was just trying to boast to his son and, and make his son think that he was this cool guy that got away with this crime when he really didn't. Um, you know, same thing with Sheridan Peterson. I think Sheridan Peterson gets a kick out of people considering him a suspect 
you know, I think he, he does it with a, you know, with a little bit of a wink, you know, uh, he, he, he likes to, to toy with people and, and suggest, Oh, maybe I am, you know, maybe I am, but, uh, but he's really not. And I think people just like to be associated with it, uh, get a kick out of it. Yeah. I think Rackstraw also enjoyed the attention from it. Um, until he didn't, I guess. Yeah. 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 I think it can be a burden on people, you know? One of the things about Rackstraw and McCoy, two suspects that get pushed all the time, I just can't get over the age. Yeah, I think, what, Rackstraw was, what, 28 at the time? Yeah, and McCoy was like 27. Yeah, right. And um, also, okay, the ages are way off for both of them, but also the FBI had both of those dudes in custody. Right. right. So if there was anything that they could have done to pin that cooper hijacking on them i right. think they would have done it right and, and you know the thing i i tend to be a a little suspicious of um of uh sketches like police sketches and whatnot uh, i know the zodiac sketch is very vague uh the zodiac wasn't really seen very clearly and i could go into the details about the circumstances of when he was seen but um it, it, it's not it, it wasn't over a long period of time and it wasn't up close with D.B. Cooper, you had an, several people who looked at him, saw him, sat next to him, observed him for hours and hours and were able to pinpoint in their heads exactly what he looked like. And I think that it, because of that, those police, the, the D.B. Cooper sketches, the, uh, the Bing Crosby sketch, so to speak, and the other one are, are probably as accurate as you're going to find. Um, because they had these people who were in such close proximity to him over such a long period of time. So I think anybody that doesn't match that physical description, like for example, um, uh, Dwayne Weber, I mean, I don't think Dwayne Weber matches the description at all. Um, so, you know, and then there's a lot of suspects who don't. And I think the age is part of that. I, I think if, if any of the flight crew thought that he was, you know, in his twenties, they would have clearly said that, and they didn't. They they all said that he was middle aged. Yeah, and I I mean, you have a twenty five year old woman sitting next to him for five hours, and right. she would notice if he was wearing makeup. She would notice if he was only two or three years older than her, mm-hmm. and not twenty years mm-hmm. older than her. Mm-hmm. If he had a wedding ring, I think all of those things are are things that would have been observed. And, and yes, it was a high stress situation. And I think um, they were under a, a great deal of strain and fear and terror, but I, I, this occurred over hours and hours. And I think they would have at some point, because I don't think he gave them any directions. Don't look at me. Uh, you know, d- d- don't make eye contact with me. I don't think he gave them any directions as far as that was concerned. So they had, free reign to look at him and observe and uh, note any details about him. So, yeah, I think, I think, I think the description of Cooper is, is about as accurate as any eyewitness description can be. And eyewitness descriptions are uh, notoriously inaccurate, but I think these are probably as accurate as you're going to get. But we've got two sketches, Chris. <laughs> well, we have not, we have more than that, right? Didn't Flo come out with her own sketch that looked like a combination between Freddy Krueger and Jack the Ripper. 
Yeah, the evil one for yeah. Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, I know it. And then you have the Bing Crosby one and the one with the sunglasses. And uh, yeah, well, you know, there's more than one uh, Zodiac sketch, too. There's one, and then there's another one that was aged. And uh, yeah, so, and it doesn't matter now, right? Because he's 85 years old and doesn't look anything like he does, you know, did back then. So, and it's so hard going back and trying to look at pictures and hold the picture up to the sketch and be like, well, you know, th- th- does this guy match the description? And, um, because like I said, so many people back in the late sixties, early seventies, you know, w- white dudes that age all look alike, <laughs> you know, absolutely. I mean, I mean all... I've, we've both seen 20 suspects that perfectly match the sketch yeah. and people always do that where they split it down the nose and then half is their suspect's picture and half is the sketch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Bill Rowland sent me one recently of a young, a younger Joe Lackage. And it's like, wow, that's a dead ringer for the sketch. Yeah. But yeah. then so is Kenny Christensen. Right. So is, yeah, yeah. So is everyone. Right. But I, I think, I think that the, the physical description, I think what, what, what the flight attendants gave to the FBI. And that's why I, I kind of discount Sheridan Peterson because it, uh, Peterson had blue eyes. And I think, the, you know, whether, you know, it was Flo or Tina, I think they both would have clearly known what eye color he had. Uh, I think that's something they would have noted. I don't think that's anything they would have gotten incorrect or not, uh, not, not uh, committed to memory. Um, I think the description is, is as accurate as you're going to find. And I think if any suspect falls out of the range of that, that description, I think they need to be pretty much discounted. And that's just my opinion. I, I could be wrong. Maybe they were in such a high stress situation that they, you know, they got key details wrong. I mean, it's certainly possible. Um, like I said, eyewitness descriptions are notoriously inaccurate. So um, maybe he had blue eyes. I don't know. Uh, I, I, I find that hard to believe though. I, I find it hard to believe too. And, and some of the suspects who have one feature or another, that's very prominent. You know, I always talk about Weber and McCoy having ears that stick way out. Yeah, they're big ears. And that's going to be the first thing you're going to say about either one of those guys. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And and th- th- there really wasn't any other distinguishing aspects. You know, I, he didn't have any scars. I don't think there were any visible tattoos. I He didn't have any rings on his fingers. So, you know, other than the tie clip, yeah, it's... There's not a lot to go on. Um, there's really a, a dearth of clues here. And uh, I think that's one of the things that <clears throat> differentiates this case from the Zodiac case is the Zodiac case is filled with clues. I mean, we have letters from the killer. We have codes. Um, you know, we have symbols and and things that he said to victims. And and, and you don't really find that with Cooper. It's, it's very, it's, he's, it's, there are times where I have to remind myself that he was a real person and not some fictional character on a TV show that, that, that somebody out there was DB Cooper, that there was an actual person who perpetrated this. Cause sometimes he's just so ethereal and, 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 and he's like a ghost and um, there's, there's not a lot to go on. There's not a lot to, to, to pin anything on him physical evidence wise. Um, fingerprints, you know, those types of things. I mean, I, I know that there have been talk about fingerprints, but that was an airplane. Who knows whose fingerprints those were on the armrest? Uh, it's hard to say. Um, and DNA, 
uh, you know, it seems to be that that's a disappointing road to go down. So I don't know. There's just not a lot of clues um, pointing to who he is. And, and that's why I think it's, for me, it's much more interesting to kind of put together the timeline, the scenario of, of what he did and what went down and, and how he executed it and, and whether or not he was successful. So, um, you know, my best guess is he, he jumped and either the money came off and landed somewhere on the banks of the Columbia or he landed on the bank of the Columbia. And then later on, somehow the floodwaters came up and by some mechanism, it ended up on Tina bar. So, uh, that's, that's all I got. I, I got nothing else, but you know, the one thing I think that's overlooked too is the Columbia river is such a fickle girl. That's a huge river and there's weird currents and, and boats going by big boats and, dredging and wildlife and ice and snow and mud and wind it's 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 not it's there's no easy answer as to what mechanism could have caused something that landed on the banks of the columbia to end up on tina bar farther downstream it could be any number of variables uh and i think that's what makes the case even more frustrating is that there are multiple answers to just one question yeah, I mean, facts that we should know, like the parachutes. I dread talking about the parachutes because I never know if I'm saying the correct thing or not. Oh, oh I know. I mean, I'm not a parachute guy. I have absolutely no skydiving experience. I don't even like to fly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, people start talking about, well, yeah, this was the chute, but it was actually the name of the canopy. And the canopy, and it was, and I'm, you know, at that point, my mind just goes blank, and I, I start thinking about what I want for dinner. Um, yeah, how can we not even know what parachute he jumped with? Yeah, like we've or, got a real good idea, but not hundred yeah, percent. Or even if the decoy parachute, the dummy parachute, was marked. I mean, I've heard people say there was an orange X on it. I've heard other people say, nope, not true. So you know, it, it's, and that's the thing is, there's just so many. Um, places of contention where nobody can agree on basic facts, you know, where he jumped, when he jumped, um, you know, did he do this? Did he do that? Um, did he pick this or did he pick that? Everything is up for debate. Everything is up for, for argument. And, and maybe that's one of the reasons like we talked about before is maybe that's one of the reasons why the Cooper community is so antagonistic sometimes is because, there's just so much material worthy of argument that that's just what it becomes is everything just becomes an argument. There's nothing that can be agreed upon. Um, and that's why I think Tom Kay's research is so essential because it's science. You can't argue with science. Um, you can come up with alternative scientific theories, but other than that, you can't argue with science. Um, and that's why I think, you, you know, the, the, the numismatist you had on that's expert opinion. That's so valuable. Um, and I, I think that that is in short supply. You know, that's why I think it was great that that my friend went on and talked to the metallurgists because those are the people we need to hear from. Get those expert opinions who are on the outside of this um, rather than trying to solve it from the inside out. Um, those are the people I want to hear more from. Yeah, I also, uh, it's so funny because I had more requests to do an episode on Ed Edwards than anyone else. <laughs> Isn't and he the guy who's been tied to every crime since the end of the World War II? 
Yes, basically every crime that <laughs> happened while Ed Edwards was alive. He right, committed. from 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 Black Dahlia to John Benet Ramsey. Yeah, including Teresa Hallback of making a murderer. Yeah, yeah. Well, once they tie, I, I won't believe it until they tie him to the Tiger King. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I got so many requests for that episode, and then I'll, I did uh, the episode with Harriet recently, and then I get an avalanche of email saying that I'm doing a disservice to the community by allowing fringe theories yeah. to get attention. Yeah. Well, so no, it's, I, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, fringe theories are one thing. Uh, I, I, I want to hear from expert opinions. You know, I want to hear from people who like, like it would have been great if you'd had that uh, lady who wanted to talk about the diatoms. I, I want to hear, even if she disagreed with Tom K's conclusions, you know, I would, I want to hear that. I want to hear, you know, real evidence. I want to get into the, the nuts and bolts of the case, um, you know, and, and really kind of see, you know, what people think. I mean, we've heard so many people give expert opinions on skydiving and the shoots and all of that, which is extremely valuable. But I want to hear about, I want to hear from hydrologists and I want to hear from, you know, uh, people like Arthur uh, uh, Friedman and, and, and all of these people. Tom Kay has done great stuff. Um, you know, I, I don't think you're doing a, a, a disservice to the case by talking about these fringe theories. Part of it is entertainment. And the other part is, is documenting all of these ideas and, and having people draw their own conclusions. Uh, and that's why I think it's important to have expert opinions on too and, and talk to people because I think people in a lot of, in the D.B. Cooper vortex have already made up their minds on certain things. You know, like the the money. Oh, well, the money had to have been spent there. You know, there's there's no way a bank teller would have gone. I mean, how many guests did you have on who said that? And then the numismatist came on and and completely contradicted that. And I think that threw the vortex for a loop. Um, I think that shook a lot of people. And that's what I want to see is I want to see people in the vortex shook. I want to, you know, take them out of their comfort zone a little bit and have them here alternative opinions, even if it may not match up with theirs. Um, that's just me personally. That's, that's, that's what I want to, that's why I think going to these metallurgists and listening to them and, and getting an outside opinion is so, so important. You mentioned Cooper being a ghost. <laughs> yeah. This is something that I cannot stand. Did Cooper exist? What do you think of the idea that he never existed? Oh, and the, and the flight crew invented him and it was an elaborate, uh, uh, ruse to to get the money and they all split it among themselves sure <laughs> yeah i mean I, I know it's a cliche but i mean come on occam's razor you know i mean the simplest explanation is usually the truth and uh, and that is just so bizarre and beyond the pale i think cooper i, I mean there are passengers on the plane who said that he existed um the the fbi is certainly believes that he exists. Uh, yeah. I mean, Cooper was a real guy. Um, he was certainly mysterious. He certainly disappeared into the, into the night, but, uh, yeah, no, I, 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 I honestly kind of, um, discount any conspiracy theories and, and, and things like that. I, I don't think that it was any vast conspiracy by the FBI or, or the government, to you know, uh, increase some, vast conspiracy by the Nixon administration to increase airport security or anything like that. Um, those are fun. They're entertaining. I like to listen to them, but I, I, I take them with a grain of salt. 
Um, same thing with the fact that Cooper didn't exist. I mean, that's that to me just is uh, just not accurate. I just don't put any faith in that. I mean, clearly he existed. And, and I think it's cool that he existed. You know, like I said, sometimes I have to remind myself that he was a real guy who lived. He had a name. He had a house. He had family. He grew up somewhere. Um, and those are the things that, you know, uh, that's the thing is that I have to keep reminding myself is he's not a fictional character. He was a real dude. Who was he? You know, why did he do this? How did he do it? Um, that's the fun part. Okay. The other theory that I can't stand at all, what are the odds that Cooper didn't jump and hid in the plane? And after they searched the plane in Reno, he just casually gets off. Uh, Yeah. I think he probably crammed himself into the toilet and hid in the commode. (laughs) No, I think that's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, I don't think there's any chance of that. Um, that is the type of theory that someone who's totally new to the case and, and thinks they have some, uh, you know, really uh, novel theory. And, hey, guys, what do you think about this? I No, I mean, that place, that plane, it, to my understanding, was searched by dogs. Um, the, the FBI searched it t- top to bottom, backwards and forwards. Uh, every nook and cranny in that plane uh, was was searched. There's no way he would have been able to successfully hide and then escape without being seen. Totally, totally, total fallacy. Not true. I saw some people discussing there were some panels next to the aft stairs that could have been removed to service things. Mm -hmm. And this guy was pointing out that there was enough room to get a body in there. (laughs) And I I wasn't going to go into like, this is ridiculous, but somebody else did. And, uh, posted a picture and it's like yo in order to remove this panel the stairs have to be all the way down and locked and it would require torque bits yeah and it's like yeah so cooper put that back on and then how did it get screwed back on maybe that's what he had in his paper bag was a a, a wireless drill or something <laughs> but yeah no i mean those are those are just it's silly you know i, I think it's silly and, and i think it's important for people who are new to the case, and I and I say this with people who are new to the Zodiac case too, is you have to be humble and learn about the case from the people who have already done the homework and then try to draw some conclusions or, or offer your own opinions. But I think people will, like for example, like with the Zodiac case, people will watch the 2007 Fincher movie and all of a sudden consider themselves experts and know exactly who did it and how. And, and I, it's just like, okay, you know, no. And it's the same thing with Cooper. And I've been guilty of it too. I've probably had times where I've thundered in with my opinion and not actually known all of the facts. Um, and, you know, you get humbled and you go back and you, and you learn more. Um, but those are the types of things. I see it on Facebook. I see it on Reddit where you have these groups of people who discuss the case and, they're, they're just, they're brand new. They really don't know a whole lot about the case, but they have very strong opinions. So, um, and most of the time they're, they're wrong and they can be proven wrong. Um, and you just have to do that gently, but yeah, I don't, I, that theory doesn't hold any water to me that they were, the crew was in on it or he hit on the plane and then escaped or yeah, no, it's, I, I, I don't find that to be credible at all. Good, because I find those to be ridiculous. Yeah, no, they absolutely are. <laughs> Let me ask you, what do you think is the most ridiculous Cooper theory that you've ever heard? 
not necessarily on a podcast, but just anywhere. Hiding in the plane is pretty ridiculous. Um, you know, there have been some suspects that are less plausible than others, <laughs> but even, even then there's still parts of it that are less ridiculous than he hid on the plane right. while it was searched with dogs and by yeah. the FBI. Right. I mean, they even unbolted the seat that he sat in. Right. Right. So yeah. it's not like yeah. they just peeked their head in and said, well, he's not in there. Yeah. No, he would have had a better chance escaping had he jumped out of the back than he would have hiding and then trying to escape later. I mean, yeah, no, that's, yeah. Those those theories are just utterly ridiculous. Uh, He clearly jumped out of the back of the airplane. The question is where and did he survive? Um, And those are questions that we don't know. And anybody who says they know for sure is is full of it because we don't know. I mean, talking about fringe and wacko theories, the E. Howard Hunt episode that I did with Nat LaFolk, Um, I bought that book and thought, wow, this is a ridiculous theory. (laughs) But then I actually read the book and talked with Nat. And, you know, E. Howard Hunt, he's probably not Cooper. Right. But the work that Nat did, I think, is really good. And even in his book, he's not saying like, look, this it's E. Howard Hunt. But he's sort of saying like, hey, you know, maybe it's worth having a look at this guy. There's some interesting connections here. Right. And that's the thing that's, that, that is so cool about the case and the suspects that you've presented is that all of them have some degree of plausibility. Um, you know, it's not like anybody's coming on here and, and saying that, that D.B. Cooper was Popeye. You know, that there's, there are all of these suspects to one degree or another make you stop and think, hmm, maybe it's, it's possible, I guess. That seems compelling. Um, but I think when you take a look at the, the macro rather than the micro, that it becomes clear that, that yeah, it's, it wasn't them. But, but yeah, that's the, every, every suspect, there's one little nugget that makes you stop and pause and think, well, maybe. John List is a, a pretty ridiculous suspect. And he, for whatever reason, he tends to make it into the list of Cooper suspects. I yeah. mean, the only reason we covered him on my show is because of the Wikipedia page, really. Is he, he's listed on there, right? He is listed on there. And he looks exactly like the sketch, as did every middle-aged dude uh-huh. in 71. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But he kills his family, I want to say, like two or three weeks before the hijacking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the timing's right in line, everything. Yeah. But he's blind without his glasses. He's not an athletic dude by any means. He was right around that same time. Wasn't he having financial difficulties? And uh, Oh, yeah. Lost his job. Yeah. Was pretending to go to work every day and was just reading the paper at the train station. Right, right, right. But, you know, on the other hand, I think he was a pretty nasty dude. And I can't imagine him being described as gentlemanly and polite and you know i think he probably yeah, also would have when he's caught, he confesses to brutally murdering his family right now are you going to tell me that you're not going to say oh yeah i also did the cooper thing as well right right if you're going to go down for essentially the most heinous crime not just murder but murdering your wife and children. Exactly. Exactly. And like, and like we've talked about, D.B. Cooper was the one thing you want to be known for. Like that's something you could kind of brag about. Right. <laughs> you know, 
so yeah, I don't understand that. But uh, yeah, I, there's always one little thing with all of these guys that makes you stop and think, well, yeah, there's something there. Um, but that's the thing is, conversely, there's always one little thing that eliminates them and makes you think, yeah, but um, there's nobody that checks all the boxes. Uh, and until somebody comes along where you can check all the boxes, I don't think um, I don't I don't think any of the possible popular suspects uh, was was DB Cooper. I, I think if any of the popular suspects were DB Cooper, they'd be in jail. What would it take to solve this, Chris? I think at this point, I think the only thing, well, two things. Number one would be DNA. I think if you got a full DNA profile and you did uh, um, forensic genealogy like they did with uh, with the Golden State Killer, and they're hoping to do that with the Zodiac Killer too. But the problem is, is as I said, the Zodiac Killer wasn't sexually motivated. So there wasn't any uh, biologic material left behind. So there's only a partial DNA profile. And they're not even sure that's legitimate. So they want to do uh, forensic genealogy with, with Zodiac, but uh, it, it's it's unlikely that, that that's going to happen. But if you had a full DNA profile with uh, with Cooper, I think you could do that and, and, and do that forensic genealogy and, and try to find out who he was. Um, outside of that, the only other way is if, you know, somebody goes through their weird uncle's attic and finds a trunk filled with, you know, Cooper money and, and, uh, you know, a fake bomb and a briefcase. Um, I, I think those are probably the only, that's the only two ways that the case gets solved. And, and frankly, I'm, like I said, I'm doubtful that it's going to be solved. I, I think I, I'm, I'm not optimistic that we will ever know, uh, the answers to the questions that we have today. That's a drag. Yeah. I know, man, it's, it would be a lot more fun if I was, you know, like that's what everybody's rooting for is the Hollywood ending to this case, you know, is, is Cooper does this daring crime and jumps out the back and, you know, he struggles to get his chute open and he finally does it at the last second and lands peacefully in a cow pasture and, you know, balls his chute up and checks his money and then walks off into the night. Now, that's a great Hollywood ending, but this is, you know, this is real life. And, and I, I don't think, uh, I don't think it tied up that nice and, and neat. And I think the money fine on Tina Barr indicates that there was some trouble because I, I don't think if you're going to risk your life, you're not going to leave, leave almost six grand behind somewhere. So uh, I, I think it probably ended up unhappily for Cooper. Uh, and um, yeah, and I, I don't think that there's enough evidence to, find an answer to who Cooper was and, and how we did it. I think we're going to be left with a lot more questions than we are answers. And, and yeah, that's a drag. I, I'm, I'm not a whole lot of fun. I'm probably the worst guest you've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, is there, uh, is there anything we didn't cover? Is there a question you wanted me to ask you, but I didn't get to? Um, no, I don't think so. We covered it. Like, like I said, I, I think if you, just look at the, the Tina Bar money fine and the flight path and you kind of triangulate that. I think the question now is, you know, how did the money end up, you know, near the Columbia and, and onto Tina Bar and and hopefully Tom will continue to do his research and we'll we'll try to get some answers to that. But um, yeah, no, I, I I think we covered some ground today, my friend. And I'm gonna invite some experts on and then pretend it was my idea. 
No, that would be great. I wrote down all the experts you said I should have on. <laughs> Metallurgy, geology. Hey, you know, I, I'm I'm in academics now, so I can help you track down some people. Just uh, just let me know. So, yeah. Um, but I think that'd be great. And I, I think that would be uh, a, a really great way to move the case forward. You know, sometimes these cases like Zodiac, I know it's just kind of hit, a, hit the doldrums and the case isn't really moving forward. There's no new information and um, nothing really exciting. And, and um, you know, sometimes you just got to you got to shake the tree a little bit, shake the branches and, and see what happens. But I think that'd be great. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Chris. I appreciate it. No, thank you. Like I said, I'm a big fan. So uh, keep up the good work. And I, I, uh, I appreciate you having me on. If someone wants to tell you how you don't know anything and how you got everything wrong, or if they want to tell you that you're a genius, <laughs> is there somewhere they could find you and harass you? <laughs> yeah, they can, they can find me on, uh, on Shudder's uh, site, uh, the Krupa Forum. Um, I'm Chaucer on there. Or uh, they can email me directly at uh, CunninghamChris35 at Gmail. Um, I'm a nice guy. I'm not going to argue with you or fight with you or yell at you unless you come at me first, but you don't want this smoke. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but no, I, am kidding. No, I'm, I'm, I love to talk about the case and, and get emails from, from people. I was on a Zodiac podcast and I, I still have people, this was a year ago or so, and I still have people email me, um, with questions and whatnot. So that's great. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm easy to get along with. I don't have a book to sell, don't have a website, don't have a podcast, don't have uh, anything to hawk. So I'm, I'm just in it because I love the case. And uh, I, uh, I just I, I like talking D.B. Cooper. So this is about the most fun two hours I've had since since coronavirus came around. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear it. Well, thanks again for coming on, Chris. I appreciate it. All right, Derek. Thanks. You can find Chris on the D.B. Cooper forum and Reddit under the name Chaucer, or shoot him an email, CunninghamChris35 at gmail.com. We've got links for it all in the show notes. Is there a theory you want us to cover or a suspect we don't know about yet? Hit us up. You can find us on Facebook. We are The Cooper Vortex. Instagram at The Cooper Vortex. On Twitter at D.B. Cooper Podcast. Or email us, dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, you should leave us a review. Thank you to Chris Cunningham for coming on the show. Thank you to Russell Colbert, the King of Cornhole. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex.